Well, good morning to each one of you. I'm excited to be with you this morning, thankful to be with you. I invite you to open up your Bibles, if you would, with me to the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, as we continue in our series in the Minor Prophets, Cultivating a New Heart. I know that sometimes these books, uh, the Minor Prophets, can be hard to find. I'll make it easy on you this morning. We're going to be in the last two books of the Old Testament. So... If you know where the New Testament is, go to Gospel of Matthew, two books back, then you're in Zechariah. We're going to be in Zechariah and Malachi. We'll start in Zechariah, then a little later on we'll go to Malachi. That's where we're headed. Right now we're in Zechariah, so thanks for turning there. This will actually be the, the last sermon in this series. Uh, and we've come quite a far away from the beginning of the summer till now through the Minor Prophets. We've studied along with them. The amazing love of God, if you can think back to his, his loyal love to his people, despite their disloyalty to him. We also looked at the seemingly surprising extension of his love to include Israel's surrounding nations, to include those people, those people who we think are, are wicked and, and undeserving of God's love. But when we reflect and we realize that we actually find ourselves in that same boat, we are thankful that God includes. And as you can see on the review section on your study notes there, and hopefully that will be helpful to you as we go along, in this series and in these books, the the devastating effects of sin are on full display. That sin is devastating. And while we learn that the certainty of God's judgment on the wicked is something that should sober us as sinners, we also learn that it is good news for sinners. Because not only does it mean that God does not just let evil go on unpunished, but that it also means that the wicked among whom we are, so undeserving that through the preaching of judgment we are invited to be full benefactors of his patience and his mercy. So evident in these books, the Minor Prophets, is God's patience and his mercy. And hopefully that's, that's not too much of a surprise to those of us who have read our Bible, who, who know scripture, because this book, the Bible, is one big story It's one big story of God's redemption, his plan to save. And that's what we find in this book. So as we go through these pages, we see God working through that thread of redemption, working through real people's lives, through real history, real circumstances, real hardship, real pain. And all the while, he is working to save mankind. That's what this story is. That's what we find here. All along the way, God working out his plan to redeem and to restore what man had made broken so long ago in the Garden of Eden. But in order for us to first appreciate redemption, restoration, salvation, which comes from God, we we must first, of course, acknowledge and recognize the brokenness and the need. Did you know that we live in a world of great need? Did you know that we live in a world of incredible brokenness and pain, of interruptions, 
in this age of information. Information just barrages us. No problem. But we're constantly confronted, constantly confronted, perhaps more than ever, with the reality that the suffering of this world is immeasurable. That all across this world, at every corner, there is suffering and pain. And researchers even come up with statistics these days and numbers that they compile about the rampant nature, the widespread nature of terrible, horrible things that happen all the time, every hour, all around us. But as those who live in this fallen, sinful, broken world, we don't need numbers or statistics to tell us that the world is broken because we know it. Our hearts, each one of us, have felt the devastation that sin causes in this life. And there are certainly times when when that reality, the reality of living in a broken world, is not weighing so heavily on our shoulders as much. We're, we're flying high above the day's troubles. We got sunshine in our pocket and everything's just dandy. We're doing great. And, and then there's other times. Times when, when life hits hard. Real hard. Times when it can be hard to find the point of getting up in the morning. Hard to find a reason to smile. When, when laughter... And joy seem like these, these foreign concepts, so, so far off, unfamiliar, unattainable. And we're tempted in these moments to despair. We're tempted to just give up. To give in to the circumstances and say, this is all there is. There's nothing left. And we're tempted to say, there is no hope. But what these texts that we're going to look at this morning teach us, and what the Bible teaches is that when we find ourselves in these situations, in the thick of the brokenness and the pain and the suffering, even when we feel like there is no hope, the Bible teaches that with God, there is always hope. With God, there is always hope. And all our hope is centered on one person, the Messiah, Jesus. The one who has already come to save us, and who will one day come again. And he will eradicate all evil. He will eliminate evil. Did you know that the Bible says there will come a day when the sufferings and the trials of this world will be no more? They will be no longer. Sin and suffering, no more. And this rotting, sin-cursed world, it will be remade into a world of wholeness where the apostle Peter says that righteousness is at home and it shines like the sun. It will be a place of great joy, unlike we've ever known here on this earth and peace will rule. And the best part in all of this, in this new heaven and new earth, that God himself will dwell there. And the good news of scripture is that for those who put their faith on this Messiah, those who put their faith in Jesus, that you will dwell with God himself there forever. The Bible teaches that hope, all our hope, is wrapped up in the Messiah Jesus, our Savior and our coming King. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Sound good? Okay. Okay. 
I'm going to pray for us, and I'll invite you to pray with me. And then after that, we'll dive into the text together. But let's do that. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. And we thank you that you do not leave us on our own to figure out who you are. That in this broken world we find ourselves in, we are not left to wonder where we can find hope. But that you show us who you are and you show us that you are our hope. And you show us where to find it. You show us where to find use, and we thank you that you do so in your word. And so we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the Bible. Thank you for inviting us, sinners, to come to know you through it. And as we sang this morning, that is our prayer now, that you would speak, O Lord. Speak in this room. Speak to our hearts. And open up our hearts to hear from you this morning. We need your help for all these things. And so we pray them in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Book of Zechariah. Chapter 1, verse 1 through 6. We're going to go through these first six verses together to start. Later on, we'll do a different part of Zechariah, and then later on, we'll get to Malachi. But first here, hear the word of the Lord. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edu, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil way and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Okay, so right off the bat here, in the first verse, we learn, A, who is talking? The prophet Zechariah. The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. We also learn when this prophet Zechariah is talking. Uh, we find ourselves in the eighth month in the second year of Darius. Darius, of course, being the king of Persia, and Persia being the superpower of the day. And so we know then through these clues that this is after the exile in Babylon. This is what we call post-exilic, meaning it came after the 70 long years of exile in Babylon for the Jewish people. We're talking about decades, decades of living in a land that is not your own. Decades of living in a foreign land under foreign rule, but now under Persian rule. So there's been a changing of the superpowers, Babylon replaced with Persia. And now under Persian rule, the people are now permitted to finally return to their land, to the land that God originally promised them, the land where they belong. And they're able to be the nation of Israel once again 
in the place where they belong. So this should be a happy time, right? An exciting time, you would think. Well, it's a returning to the land was great and all, but, but great is not exactly how you would describe the current state of the land. The city walls still laid in ruin. The temple, the house of God, was nothing but a rubble heap. And the land itself, dry, dry from drought. And they looked at all this, brokenness everywhere. And even if they tried, any efforts they had to even begin to rebuild at all would be met with severe opposition from neighboring countries who didn't want them to rebuild. And so any attempts they even to get started were going to come with opposition. So do you, do you feel the bleakness of that situation as they sat there in the rubble, wondering where do we even go from here? Where do we even start? Wondering what's even the point of trying at all? So as you consider their state of affairs, can you not relate yourself? Does not life sometimes have a way of knocking you down? Life's circumstances sometimes hit so hard, they just suck all the energy, the life out of you, the pep in your step. You're left there wondering and asking the same questions. Where where do you even start? Where do you go from here? And what's even the point of trying at all? Have you asked those questions before? So that's the same state of affairs and the same mood for God's people here. And they've sunken into this sort of woe is me attitude. They've they've sunken into just focusing inward, focusing on themselves, their pain, their circumstances. And so God brings along the prophet Zechariah here. And what does Zechariah say? Look with me at verse 3. Therefore say to them, so the Lord's telling Zechariah what to say, thus declares the Lord of hosts. Here's what he says. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts. So here's what he said to their fathers long ago. Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But he says, they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? So God brings Zechariah along, and Zechariah says in the midst of their woe-is-me attitude, he says, hey, 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 cut that out. Cut that out right now. Do you know who you sound like? Do you know who you're acting like? You're acting like your fathers who got us into this mess in the first like. You're acting like the people whose sin and corruption sent us into exile in the first place. Do you remember Babylon? You want to go back there? Do you want to do another exile? Have you learned nothing? It's like a mouse who escapes from a mouse trap and sees another mouse trap and thinks, oh, great, cheese. <laughs> so Zechariah comes out swinging here with a strong rebuke, a stern warning to not repeat the sins of old. But his message, as we read on, we learn, is not primarily rebuke or correction, but it's actually a message of encouragement. In their dreary state, Zechariah's mission is to lift their spirits, lift the spirits of the people, to offer them hope in a seemingly hopeless state. 
in a couple places in this book, you'd read that his purpose is to comfort and to strengthen the people with his message. Those are the purpose of his words, to comfort and strengthen. And he actually tag teams with the prophet Haggai who ministered before him. So Haggai came along to the same people, the same people who come back, they see all this rubble and they think, where do we go from here? And Haggai actually lit the fire under them a little bit to get them going, to get the rebuilding process at least started, to get the ball moving. And so they begun under Haggai's ministry, the rebuilding of the temple. They actually started. They started moving forward. And then he hands the baton off, the prophet Haggai, to the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah says, thank you very much, Haggai. Great work. Now let me encourage you to keep moving. We knew this wasn't going to be easy. Let me encourage you. And what words does he use to encourage them? How does he encourage them? By reminding them of God. By reminding them of God. He reminds them specifically of who God is what he has done for them in the past, what he is doing for them right now, and what he will do for them in the future. Did you notice the pattern? It's a good pattern for us to follow too. After Zechariah's, when we find ourselves in similar circumstances in times of trouble, we must remember who God is, that is his character, what he is like, who God is. We look back in our past And we see how God has cared for us, what he has already done for us. What he has already done for us. What he is doing for us now. And what he promises to do for us in the future. Remember that pattern when you find yourself in a similar situation. And the temptation for us and the temptation for the Jews here is when we're in the thick of those times, is to despair. It's to look downward. That's our temptation. To focus just on the pain and the circumstances and the suffering and to just get caught up in that. Very easy to do. But Zechariah is basically holding up in one hand a giant stop sign. And in the other hand, he's holding up a giant arrow that's pointing up to the sky. And he's saying, stop. Stop that woe is me attitude and remember God. Remember God. For he has not forgotten you. He remembers you. Stop and remember God. He sees you right where you are. He knows what's going on. He has not forgotten you. So you stop and remember him. God says, return to me and I will return to you. So Zechariah does this, this stop and and point to God by going into a series of visions. And as you flip through these pages, all the way up through chapter 6, you might notice if your Bible's like mine, some some section headings, some chapter headings that talk about these visions. The visions of a horseman, the vision of a golden lampstand, the vision of four chariots, etc., etc. There's all these visions. And all these visions are intended to remind, to remind Israel that God remembers them and that he is actively working on their behalf for their good, for their benefit. God remembers you. So just because you find yourself in a state of trouble, and it doesn't matter how severe it is, doesn't matter how deep the pit is that you find yourself in or how broken things seem to be, that doesn't mean that God has forgotten you. He hasn't. And that's Zechariah's message. He remembers you. He remembers you in your time of need. He hasn't forgotten about you at all.
But it's important for us to notice that Zechariah's encouraging message is not fake or fairy tale. Do you ever meet someone who, when you're in a, a bad situation or, or the situation's bleak, and they just have, you know, those rose-colored glasses, and they just see everything is great and, and dandy, right, when it really it isn't, and you just want to slap them because they're not speaking truth? <laughs> Things aren't good. Well, that's not Zechariah here. Zechariah, his message is not that life is going to be without trouble. That's not what he says. He never promises that it's going to be fun or easy from here on out. That it's just smooth sailing ahead, guys. No, he doesn't say that. In fact, he knows that the road of restoration is going to be hard, long, wearisome. He knows that there's pain ahead. But despite that, in the midst of that, he lifts their eyes from their dire circumstances and focusing on themselves, he lifts their eyes up to the one who holds those very circumstances in his hands. The one who holds the very future in his hands. And the one who always keeps his promises. Did you know that God keeps his promises? He is the definition of what reliable looks like. He has never and he will never fail. God keeps his promises. You can always count on him. And there's one promise in particular, one promise that Zechariah rightfully comes back to again and again. When all is said and done, one thing remains. Turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9. We're going to go to the ninth verse in that chapter. So 9-9 is where we're headed. And at a time where everything was literally broken, literally broken, in the midst of literal brokenness, in the midst of a city broken, a nation broken, and more importantly, amidst the spiritual brokenness of the people's hearts, Zechariah points to the promise that God will ultimately restore, that he will restore what is broken. God will ultimately make right what man had made wrong so long ago in the Garden of Eden when sin and shame entered into the world. God hinted way back then, as soon as sin entered, that he would use one man, one man to fix it, to make right what had been made wrong, to make whole what had been made broken. And later, when he chose Abraham, God revealed that this one man who would fix everything would come from Abraham's line, that he would be a descendant of Abraham, and that through this one man, God would bless all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth among whom we are would be blessed through this one man. And even later on, we find out that this same man would be a son of David, and therefore, he would be a king. And we learn of this king that his kingdom will never pass away that his kingdom will be eternal. It will be an everlasting, an unending kingdom. And here now, Zechariah reminds the Jewish people that this one king who will restore everything and who will bless all the families of the earth, he is coming. He is coming. What does he say in verse 9? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Rejoice 
greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. And Zechariah, not himself removed from the brokenness of this world, not himself removed from the pain that the Israelites found themselves in. He charges the joyless to rejoice, the voiceless to shout, and the visionless to behold. Why? Because your king is coming to you. Not just any king, your king, the king, the one prophesied of old, the one promised to you coming to rebuild and to restore and the only one who can rebuild and restore what is broken. He is coming. And that is good news. Rejoice, shout, behold, your king is coming to you. And look how this king is described in the same verse, verse 9. He is righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Sound familiar? Years later, after Zechariah spoke these words originally, years later, the king that he spoke of did come to his same broken city, riding on a donkey. His name was Jesus. We know this on this side of history. Jesus came riding on a donkey, just as Zechariah said he would. But if you look around at the world today, and maybe even you just look at at Jerusalem itself now, or the nation of Israel, and you think, if the king really did come, if Jesus did come, then, then why is everything still broken? It doesn't look very restored to me. Well, the Bible teaches that there will actually be two comings of the Messiah. Two comings. The first, surprisingly, was to suffer and to die. And then the second would be to rule and to reign. And both are in view here for Zechariah. He speaks of both comings. For both are a part of God's perfect plan of redemption. Both needed. Some of the first uh, coming references that Zechariah speaks of throughout his book, we won't have time to, to flip to the exact references, but he talks, as we read, of course, about the king coming to Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, he talks about the betrayers, 30 pieces of silver. These things should sound familiar to you. He talks of a suffering shepherd whose sheep will be scattered, and he talks about the people of Jerusalem looking on him whom they pierced. And still he looks forward to a second coming that is also in view when the king will come again and restore Jerusalem to glory. When he will come and eradicate all the enemies of Israel. He will disperse all of them. Then he will rule as king in peace. And the text says that Jerusalem will dwell in security. And even the wealth of the nations will be brought into their city in this glorious future for Israel. These prophecies of a future messianic kingdom, of a glorious future, they they have special significance for the nation of Israel. And and remember who Zechariah is talking to here. The remnant that's that's left over from the exile that's coming back to, to begin restoration of their nation. And you see how this message would have been of great hope for them who sat literally amidst the rubble, picking up the broken pieces of their nation. And God says that one day he will restore it through the Messiah, 
the king who is coming to you. And yet future for them, but past for us. He also spoke of a savior who would come to take away their sin. But even now, as we stand here today, the words of Zechariah, some of them yet still unfulfilled. The second coming of Jesus has not been fulfilled yet. And so for Israel, there is still, and for us, unfinished business, so to speak. Rejoice, shout, behold, look forward. Your king is coming to you. And that is good news. So we take a step back now. The prophet Haggai, Zechariah, they've ministered to these Jews who have returned from exile in the midst of all this rubble, and they help get the ball rolling on rebuilding the nation of Israel. And they try to fan the flame of hope in the people, looking forward to a future day that would come when, when Jerusalem would be restored to future glory, looking forward to a time that the Messiah would usher in. Now, if you fast forward a couple years after Zechariah and Haggai's ministry, flip with me to the book of Malachi, just the next book over and head uh, ahead of time here to chapter three with me. So we're fast forwarding a couple, a couple years here now. The temple has been redone at this point. So that's done. That's good. It's progress, right? And some other progress has been made in other areas. Rebuilding is, is, is going, but, you know, in the large scheme of things, the nation is still pretty insignificant as a whole. Persia is still the superpower of the day. And if you know your history, the nation of Israel isn't exactly next up on the list. It's going to be Greece and then Rome after. And so clearly the Messianic age has not yet dawned, right? This hope that they were supposed to have, well, where is it? And so in the book of Malachi, we get a peek into the state and the mood of Israel during this time. So again, after Haggai and Zechariah's ministry, what's going on? Let's peek into it. What do we find here in Malachi? We discover that Israel hasn't exactly heeded the words of Haggai and Zechariah. They haven't really ultimately learned much from their time in exile. And they continue on in their sin and corruption no different than their fathers before them. Surprise, surprise, the problem of sin persists. And if you read the Old Testament, and as we've seen in this series on the minor prophets, as we've read them, you become amazed at God's patience with sin. God's patience with sin. As sin continues to persist with, among his people, his patience persists. And as sin continues to persist today, so does hope. So does hope. Because God knew that dealing with the problem of sin would require far more than a 70-year exile in Babylon. He knew that it would require cultivating a new heart, giving a new heart through the Messiah, Jesus. And that was his plan from the very beginning. And that is what we find here in Malachi chapter 3. We're going to read these first four verses in this chapter. Chapter 3, here we go. Read with me. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, the Lord whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? 
And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old as in former years. So here we learn that again, yes, the Messiah is coming. Bank on that. But he's not just coming to conquer, which he will, but he's also coming as a purifier. He purifies with the refining fire, we learn, the hearts of those unclean. And remember what we've learned in our study of these minor prophets, that God does not let sin go unpunished, and how that reality is actually good news. Because God does not just look at us in the midst of our sin and say, ah, you know what, that's fine. You and your sinful hearts, come on into heaven. Bring all that sinfulness with you. It's okay. But no, God actually makes a way to remove sin completely from our hearts. Completely. To give us a new heart. To cultivate a new heart within us. To purify us. To make us whole. And this is not something that we can do, but only something that He can do. Do you want to be made whole this morning? Do you long to have a pure heart? that is pleasing to God. Well, the Bible says that everyone who hopes in Jesus purifies himself as Jesus is pure. For we know that when he appears, that we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. Jesus can and he will purify you. If you put your faith in him, Jesus will make you whole. So then no matter what life circumstances you find yourself in. And I know for some of you this morning that you find yourself in some pretty tough ones, some really tough ones. But no matter where you find yourself, today or tomorrow, know that God has not forgotten you. He sees you right where you are. He knows exactly what's going on. Remember how he's cared for you in the past. How he's caring for you now. Believe it. And what he promises to do for you in the future. God cares for you. He remembers you. Never think that he's forgotten you. When you're tempted to to despair, to think that there is no hope, know that there is always hope in Jesus Christ. Do you believe that this morning? He made a way for you to be reconciled with God once and for all. There's no conditions, no hoops you need to jump through. His work on the cross is already done. He already died. He gave his life to set you free. And if you're hesitant and ashamed this morning, know this, that there is no amount of sin that is greater than God's love. And he proved that on the cross. When he came, And he died for you. And he didn't remain in the grave, but he rose again on the third day to new life so that you too can rise to new life with him. So 
so that he could give you a new heart, so that he could purify you. He could take broken you and broken me and make us whole. Do you long to be made whole? Jesus promises that he will for you if you put your faith in him. He is the hope of the world, Jesus, the Messiah. Would you stand and we'll pray together to close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus this morning. Our hope and the hope of the world. Thank you that you are so wise in your plan to save. You knew exactly what needed to be done. And we know that we're quick to forget that we need a Savior. And each one of us does as much as the next. So this morning we confess our need for you. We come to you so thankful that Jesus' work on the cross is already done. And we ask that you help us to look forward, to long for a world that is not this one, that is not broken and devastated by sin's effects, but for the future world that you promise to provide, where there will be no more death, no more pain. Help us to long for that time, to be with you in your presence, and for when we will finally be made whole, all by the work of Jesus, the Messiah. We thank you for all of it. We thank you in his name, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.